Warm welcome to all of you to Intersections. How are all of you doing? Today's conversation is something that really in some ways strikes to the core of what is happening in humanity today. We are in some ways being deeply humbled by the virus in recognizing that our institutions, our practices in society and organizations and institutions and our leaders know a few things, but also don't know a lot. And it has been humbling to recognize that a lot of solutions for what will allow us to build a better world, a more stable, a more secure, a more connected world, a lot of the solutions are still to come. And the work of Amy Edmondson, our guest for today, is seminal in helping provide a pathway towards building the kinds of capabilities and sensibilities that we need both in our leaders and in our teams and organizations and society to get us there. Why? Because if not any single expert or leader is going to have the answers, then the answers will have to come from the collective, which is what she has invested so much heart and thought into for all these years. So it is a great pleasure and privilege for me to give you a little bit more background on Amy before then I invite her to the conversation as well in just a couple of minutes. So here you go. Amy is a um, leadership expert, uh, professor and uh, at Harvard Business School and a psychologist. She has um, had her education in visual environmental studies and engineering and then a master's degree in psychology, PhD in organizational behavior, all from Harvard and has been over the last many years a distinguished scholar, thinker and speaker. Uh, her role at Harvard Business School, of course, has given her a you know, tremendous platform through which to incubate and experiment and evolve and ultimately find a voice for this work. She has been recognized you know, globally for her contributions to the advancement of management science, ranked number three in the Thinkers 50 2019 list and in the HR magazine as one of the most influential international thinkers in human resources year upon year. Her work has um, come to very concrete fruition in ideas, thoughts, articles, talks in many of these very storied publications and platforms, including TED and the New York Times. And she has written a number of books that have gained their own acclaim for codifying these ideas that she has researched and discovered over time around themes like innovation and learning and teaming. And then most recently, creating a fearless organization a book that has been translated into many languages and deemed a groundbreaking blueprint to creating a fear-free culture. She's an acclaimed voice on leadership. And with that little bit of background, it is my great pleasure, therefore, to welcome you here, Amy. Thank you for joining us today. You are welcome. And thank you for that most gracious and generous introduction. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just delighted uh, to be here and, and appreciate all that you just said. Thank you. I, I say that with a lot of personal um, you know, appreciation because I have been a big fan of your work for many years. <laughs> you might remember times in the past where I've called you and you've um, shown such, um, such grace and thoughtfulness and patience and just, um, <laughs> just educating me on kind of how to do the mapping between the beautiful ideas that you have you know, put out there and the real world challenges or problems that some organizations that I was consulting with at that, that time faced. So it really struck a deep chord with me that here is someone who is not just out there to do and maximize her footprint, seeking to have deep impact, seeking to have real results and outcomes happen. Um, so Amy, let's do this. To start, let me just quickly lay out what I see as like three big pillars of your work. And I'm doing this to ask you, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? If you had to just synthesize for our audience here, what are like the key things that you have uncovered that are import to the world today? What would those be? And so, so the three things that I saw, one is that we have to build learning cultures. We have to build learning organizations, not just about performing, but also about learning. So that's mm -hmm. number The second is that central to learning is failure. That failure is not something that we should shrug under the rug or feel embarrassed or awkward or try to avoid but it's something we have to learn to embrace. And even as we are doing that, we have to, this is something I love from an uh, you know, earlier Harvard Business Review article from you, we have to be able to differentiate between smart failures and dumb failures because there are dumb failures still. 
Um, and so failures and the right relationship with them. And then the third and last is, well, if you want to build this learning culture, you recognize there's a lot of things you don't know and you want to be open to diagnosing and even walking into at times experimental domains where there's failure, then you need to create psychological safety because you need to harness the wisdom of the crowds, the uh, collective intelligence of your team. And the only way to do that is if they all feel safe and comfortable in being part of that dialogue and the discourse about what happened, what could have happened, and here's a new idea and all of that. So those are the three things that I, I see. And, to tell me if that sort of is, is halfway there or what else do we need to do to fully inform our, our audience here about the, the core pillars of your work? You're a very good student, Hitantra. You're a very good, uh, a good digester of, of many articles, many, many books, many articles. Uh, let me, let me um, try to use that as a, as a useful platform. I will say that your first and third pillar to me blur a little bit. I, to me, a psychologically safe environment is almost, not quite definitionally, but almost one and the same as a learning culture, right? I just don't see how you can learn collectively, especially not, not as much individually, unless you've got psychological safety. So I want to I talk more about, about that and, and maybe add on to, to those two, tightly related to those two, the notion of teaming and that like it or not, we, uh, most of us face work that is deeply interdependent with others, right? So we can no longer just, you know, stay in our lane, do our jobs, work hard and get the, the rewards of having worked hard and all will be well. It's like, no, I mean, most of what we do, whether you're in B2B sales or drug development, or even developing and teaching a course, you're doing it with others. You're doing it in such a way that their, their ideas, their expertise are absolutely essential to making progress. And you did, you did mention with the third one, psychological safety, that that's all about finding ways to harness collective intelligence. And collective intelligence is by its nature diverse intelligence, that people have different backgrounds, different expertise, different training, different ideas. And unless that's brought together, the work, the output is going to be going to be suboptimal. And and then and then I will say I love that you highlight failures as one of the three pillars. Um, and I would agree with that. In fact, I think it's the one area other than the, the Harvard Business Review article, which is, I think, a useful and simple framework for people. Other than that one article, I haven't done enough with this. I talk a lot about it. I speak a lot about it, but I'm not sure I've written enough about it. So that's that's on, on the to-do list. And let me just bounce off a minute on that dumb failure versus smart failure, because you're, you're right. I, I think there's been a sort of period in management, popular management articles and discussion that sort of celebrates failure. You know, failure is good. Well, yes and no, right? Not all failure is good. Come on. that's It's obvious. But unless we talk about it, then the reality is people still won't feel comfortable with and revealing the good kind of failure. If we don't make clear distinctions between what you called smart failure and dumb failure, we really won't be harnessing the power of smart failure uh, because people intuitively know, uh, nah, I don't think so. Failure, failure is not so good. And there are two kinds of dumb failure. Like one is the the kind that individuals make. I mean, when I when I put the milk back in the cupboard and the cereal in the fridge, that's a dumb failure that I made all by myself, right, with no help. But the kind of dumb failure that I'm really passionate about and, and study often is the kind where organizations make really stupid decisions. You know, they launch a product um, that has real flaws. They acquire a company even when the acquisition doesn't make sense. Um, now, you could say, but hey, there was uncertainty. We, we didn't know that. But it turns out when you do the anatomy of many of these failures, there were people in the team, in the organization who had grave concerns, but their voices weren't heard. And so then this becomes a situation of dumb failure at the collective level, right? At the, at the organizational or team level. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's explore that a little bit more at the organizational level. It seems to me from your work that um, we can add on one more attribute to what um, what a dumb failure is, which is um, let's let's play with that scenario that you just yeah. gave 
of the failure of that product, which uh, there were some people who had reservations about, but their voice was not heard. Now, I think you also highlighted the importance of um, what happens after that, right? Once you have seen that the product has failed, do you shove that outcome under the rug or do you actually bring it out and pull apart the process of product development and product piloting and launch and see like what went wrong in that process. And in so many case studies and examples that you've given in kind of like a postmodern way, you know, allow us to learn how to right. learn from failure. Yeah, and that is one of the most important aspects of that whole domain. It, we, we don't celebrate failure just to celebrate failure. We celebrate failure for its learning value. But we can't get its learning value unless we do the hard work of failure analysis. And too often that work is done superficially or not done at all. And when I say superficially, I mean, you know, we come away with conclusions that are self-serving, like the customers just weren't ready for our fantastic thing. It wasn't us, it was, it was them. Um, or we, you know, we look at one level down, but we don't do the deeper work of where we made our own uh, mistakes or missteps and contributed to the failure. Yeah, I'm reminded of this moment. I have only like a fuzzy recollection of it, but it was it was a moment that really struck with me in the light of some of these ideas that you offered. And it's from this movie on Martin Luther King and about his uh, the famous Selma march. Selma, it's called Selma, I believe. Selma. I think that's yeah. Movie. yeah, 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 very good. So you've seen it, me? Yeah, it's one. I, it's a great movie. I want to watch it again, actually, with my with my kids, but I haven't done that yet. Yeah, I, I do feel like it'll be a fun movie to watch again. And uh, that's a great way of doing it. I, I want to watch it with my daughter, too. Right, right. Fun and painful, right? It's, 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 it's a terrific it's a terrific movie, but boy, it's um, it, it's painful, of course, on many levels. But it has a failure in it that you're thinking of? Yeah, and I mean, for all that's going on, you know, all the ferment in society right now, there are probably a lot of good lessons there about leadership. Uh, so the one that I'm remembering is there's a moment where there's one of these young Turks, right? This like doer who really wants to take that anti-racism, civil liberty struggle to the next level, accelerate it, amplify it, etc. It's got a lot of energy. And and so he's 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 pushing, he's pushing Martin Luther King to like be more decisive and assertive and accelerative. And and Martin Luther King is talking about some some experience that they had, I think, in a previous kind of moment in, in New York, I think New York State, it was Albany or somewhere. And, and and the man is basically cynically saying like, yeah, but that you fail there. That didn't work. As they were saying, like, look, your formula doesn't work. And right. Martin Luther King recognizes that. And he said, yes. And this is what we learned from it. And this is what right. we learned from it. And that's why this is wow. what we're going to do now. You got to find that scene. That could be a good classroom piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's always yeah. struck yeah. me. And, uh, from it. and, and then if you reframe it that way, there's no, there's no failure. I mean, it's all, you know, it's, it's just discovery. It's just learning. It's just, um, I, I like to talk about execution as learning as a frame, right? Because I think we think of execution, meaning got to get things done, right? And there's yeah. whole books written in our space about execution, the key to success. But often that brings up a mindset of just do it, right? Versus do it, mindful that your hypothesis for what's needed might be wrong. Right? So you act and you act in good faith, right? You do the work in good faith. You deliver the product, you um, conduct the interview. And then it turns out you're, you're wrong. Like you were missing something and that's gotta be okay. You know, because we live in this VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. So we're going to be wrong often. And if we're not profoundly open to what our, experience has to teach us we're not really doing our job yeah uh, we are going to be wrong often what a powerful um <laughs> and humbling kind of you know you know okay. idea, idea to offer us right i mean what do you think of this I, I i imagine that part of the impulse we have to want to go into a very sort of singular path mode of like this is the plan this is what we'll execute and you know uh, this is your role and this is your role. Is it coming perhaps from a place where we hunger for certainty and like simple resolution of like questions in our world? And we, we are just uncomfortable with staying in a state of ambiguity. Oh, yeah. Some kind of adaptability, right, yeah. to, to the moment. I think that's a very uncomfortable place for people, for humans, where um, turns out, you know, there is research on this. It's not mine, but we are 
hardwired to prefer certainty. And then we kind of expect certainty, rationality, fairness. I mean, that's, that's what we, that's our default cognitive expectations. And then reality just keeps, keeps knocking at them. And sometimes we miss those knocks and, and just, we see what we expect rather than what's actually there. But other times we're tuned in and we know what's, we see what's happening and then we're probably erroneously upset by it. Like we're upset by it and we waste valuable energy being upset rather than saying, oh, that's what's so, right? What does that mean, right? What, what do I do with that new information, with that new awareness? I, I love that idea of reality coming knocking and then sometimes <laughs> we miss hearing those knocks. Um, uh, it, it, you know, I, I use a phrase of uh, truth coming knocking, you know, truth coming knocking to, to on our door and uh, are we going to be open to receiving it? Right. Very similar in spirit. Uh, there is a dear friend and uh, renowned uh, psychotherapist of our times, um, Dan Siegel uh, from UCLA. And he, as part of his work in bringing in some neuroscience and some meditation mindfulness, you know, practices into, um, into mental health, in, into therapy, he uh, has used a phrase which um, I've also been really drawn to, you know, that I think like, you know, kind of like speaks to this kind of maturation of the human condition that you're talking about. He calls it like, basically being able to open yourself up like like creating an open space of possibilities as opposed to the need to always have your opinion or your view and confidence and certainty an open space of possibilities what do you think of that i think we get so much messaging in our upbringing and and culturally that says you're supposed to be right and you're supposed to know and you're supposed to you know have plans and follow through on those plans versus being open to what life is bringing you know and being open to what others are saying i mean truly open there's been said by many but the notion of are you listening to learn or are you listening just to you know wait until it's your turn to speak and it's of course a profound difference and it's a and it's a palpable difference if you're listening uh, to learn it's a gift yeah listening to learn how how beautiful can you give us yeah. some, some example of like a smart yeah, or probably a good idea, right? Thank you for that question because uh, otherwise it's just an abstract notion. So uh, let me give you the one that comes to mind. And I don't think it matters what company or where, because I want to say it in such a way, it's true, but to say it in such a way that's sufficiently generic. A, a, a consultancy, a business services firm, let's say, and this is true, is aware that uh, there's starting to be more competition in its domain and a lot of other providers are able to do quite similar things. And so it starts to think about the team, the top team start to think about what other services might we provide? And they come up with an idea that's quite different in compared to their usual offerings. It's it's new, but they 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 believe that it would be valuable and help help clients. So they decide to they kind of let people know they're up for this. They let clients know they're up for this. They get a request to deliver this kind of service, and a couple of months go into this project small team, client, it fails, right? It doesn't make any difference for the client. It doesn't, um, nothing, nothing changes. I mean, the team does some really wonderful work, but it doesn't land where it needs to land for the client to actually take action. So they go back and try to figure out what went wrong. Now, I'm going to, I call this a smart failure because they were trying to innovate. They had this sense that there's an opportunity here. More is needed from us. Clients need things we aren't doing. This might be something they need. And yet the project is a, is a flop. Right? So they go back and try to figure out, and they are able to figure out why uh, why it didn't work. A lot of their old biases that come from the traditional services they offer absolutely were wrong and got in the way of doing this new service well. So having figured that out, then they you know they try it again. Um, and at this point today, this is about forty percent of their business, right? So it's a smart failure because there was opportunity there. They had a really good hypothesis. But they were blinded by some of their assumptions about certain things they would have to change in their own behavior to make it work. Having figured that out, then they were able to move forward. So smart failure, right? You know, dumb failure would be um, a, a company launches a new service. There's senior team debates it. There's people on the senior team who absolutely know that technically and from a staffing point of view, we are not capable of pulling this off. Nonetheless, 
business development loves it or marketing loves it, they announce it to the world. They decide to go ahead anyway, despite those concerns expressed by operations and and, uh, human resources. And then the thing leads to just thousands of complaints and all sorts of problems. That's a dumb failure, right? Because they could have known better had they listened to their own internal experts. So an intelligent failure is new territory. Like literally we haven't been here before. There's no playbook I can pull off the shelf to tell me how to do it well. Dumb failure is the information was there, but you didn't access it for whatever reasons. That is a beautiful distinction. I'm going to try to now merge them because there is a another situation that uh, I have seen people struggle with, which is um, when in a new situation where, where you're saying if you fail there, well, that, that could be a smart failure because it was new. In a new situation, you apply more of like a knower kind of mindset where you just don't uh, budget enough, let's say, time or the design uh, to make sure that there's some experiments, there's some flexibility. And so it ends up being like a dumb failure because you should have realized that you didn't know much. This is why uh, I think design of experiments, let's say, is a team sport. And if you have failed to harness the collective intelligence, go back to your earlier phrase, then um, you've put yourself and your and your colleagues at greater risk than was necessary. There's always going to be risk, right? There's always uncertainty, and especially in new terrain. In new terrain, there's a lot of uncertainty. But make sure you come armed with the knowledge you do have and are clear-eyed about the knowledge you don't yet have. How do you encourage psychological safety in life and death learning environment, pharma, military, I know you've done a lot of your work in healthcare, so I'm sure you can speak to this from real experience. Um, yeah. By the way, also remind, how safe is it for people to fail and share in those environments? It also reminds me of a beautiful story you have about like where you first started to uncover some of these uh, sure. you know, these trends and themes about when you were doing your doctoral work, I think it was. Uh, it would be right. great for you to share the story. All right, so let me start with the short answer is that in, in my experience, there is even greater appreciation of the need for psychological safety in high-risk environments like healthcare delivery, like pharma, like airlines, passenger airline, and military. It's far more likely. Now, I don't want to imply that it's going to be consistent across organizations in those industries, um, but it is far more likely than in the average corporate setting that they have really thought about and are aware of the critical need for everyone's voice given what's at stake, right? There's this, that in fact has been the theme that runs through the cockpit resource management training that over the past 30 years has transformed passenger air travel into a ridiculously safe uh, activity, right? I don't mean ridiculous, I mean, you know, astonishingly, ambitiously, magnificently safe activity because they have resolved to ensure that voice is heard, to ensure that all small and large mishaps are learned from and then incorporated. And that's because it's far more direct and obvious to them what the consequences are. And therefore, they've often built leadership structures to enable that. But here's the really challenging and true uh, observation. I think air, airlines are rather consistent um, nowadays. But when you talk about, let's say, healthcare delivery or at, or the military, unfortunately, we have still a lot of variability. So we'll have pockets of just, you know, fantastically well-run patient care units or um, military groups, and then we'll have pockets uh, where people are terrified. And the results, um, unfortunately, are, are pretty clear, too, of that. And so you rightly tie this discussion to some of my early research in graduate school, which was research that actually you know, maybe epitomized a a smart failure in that I had a hypothesis uh, that was drawn from the research in the aviation industry that uh, better teams in hospitals would make fewer errors. And and that, you know, that makes sense, right? Teams that had good leaders, good quality relationships, you know, clarity about the goal, all, all all the things that you would want your team to have. I could measure that with a previously validated survey instrument. And meanwhile, in this study, trained medical investigators were out going to the patient care unit. So from a research point of view, very nice design because there's independent collection of the dependent variable. I'm not doing it 
I'm just waiting uh, for those data to come to me. They collected those data for six months. I did my survey in month one. And when I finally have the data on both sides of the equation, I have what at first looks like a lovely, significant correlation between teamwork, let's say, and error rates. All right, so this is good. Yeah. <laughs> publish, here we go. And then I notice, doesn't take too long to notice that oh, it's in the wrong direction. The, the, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? The data seemed to suggest that according to the team diagnostic survey, better teams didn't have lower error rates. They had higher error rates. So it's like, what is going on? And, and so I then was struck, not immediately, but after a couple of hours of pulling my hair out by a blinding flash of the obvious, uh, which was maybe better teams don't make more mistakes. Maybe they're more able and willing to talk about them. And this, you know, there's many of you are thinking right away, yeah, but, but but how do you know? And we don't, right? We don't know. What we learned from that study was that, in fact, it is desperately hard to get the actual error rate. What you get more often than not is the detected error rate, because it's easy to hide errors, especially those errors that didn't spiral out and, and cause harm, right? Those are, those are easily hidden. We all know that, right? We know that from wherever we work. Um, and, and so that's true in healthcare also. And it doesn't take much thinking to realize that the ones who are talking about it are likely to be safer places to be admitted, right? You don't, you know, you don't want people hiding. You don't want people hiding from the boss. You want, you want, um, you want people coming clean and being open. So that was the, you know, that was the stumble. My hypothesis was wrong. I was ultimately not able to weigh in one way or the other about that hypothesis, but I was able to show from those data one interesting thing, which was that even in two very strong organizational cultures, the groups, the teams within those organizational cultures had vastly different climates, right? Interpersonal climates. At that time, I didn't have the term psychological safety for that, but I just knew, wow, it's really different to work over here versus one floor up. Even though they have the same CEO, the same basic resources and training programs and so on. And that taught me, and, and this is a theme we can go further with, but that taught me that the leaders in the middle may be the most important leaders you have. Right? It's, leaders at the top are, of course, important to creating your culture. But it's the leaders in the middle who are shaping the climate for voice. That's powerful. You know, it reminds me of another, you know, piece of research in recent times that has shown, and I'm forgetting the source. I don't know if this was one of the Google studies or from one of the HR, you know, expert firms out there that showed that the key reason people leave is not necessarily the culture or the CEC. Yeah, yeah. It's the manager, right? There's something mm -hmm. that they're not experiencing, right? So. Any, any leader aspiring to create a certain kind of culture really needs to work on upgrading anybody who's taken on a management role. I like to think of it sometimes in the following way, like, would we give anybody an airplane to fly if they weren't like fully certified with like all the skills they need to know? Because like, why would we put 250 lives in that person's hands? But here we are in our discipline of management and business, and we happily, you know, promote people to having direct reports. And now you're in a position to really make or break that person's happiness, their career success, their contributions at work, maybe even leave lifelong kinds of impressions on them. And we sometimes are doing that in organizational life without that rigor, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, there, there's, we've been talking, or at least my examples earlier were about the, you know, the risks of not hearing from people about concerns. But, but psychological safety is just as pertinent for not hearing from people about ideas, not having people, um, you know, be willing and able to kind of push back and, and make their case. Right. So um, let's say if an, an executive shoots down a perfectly good idea in a psychologically safe environment, personal will, will push back and say, hey, let me let me try that again. I, I you know, in a sense, they're taking responsibility for not being compelling enough yet. But here's how I'm thinking about it. And then they might say, they might open it up. You know, what do others think? Like, what, what, what experiences do you have that might take this 
perfectly good but still incomplete idea and take it the next step. Psychologically safe teams are better able, even with hierarchy, to kind of um, push ideas. For, no ideas are perfect. Just right, right out of the shoot. Right? We got, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to work on them and and make them further. But well, um, psychologically safe teams are more able to capture and integrate the collective wisdom. I want to sort of like uh, explore the boundaries of your kind of vision, you know, for a couple of minutes. After my doctoral work, I ended up going to work in management consulting. So I was, at, I, I was at McKinsey. And in my first few months, I found it really hard to be at my full potential in terms of contributing, particularly in team meetings, particularly when there were like senior partners of McKinsey there or senior clients there. And I saw some others, including my peers, be a lot more free form than natural self, their, their best self, et cetera. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on. And what was going on is that I had come from a mathematics background. I used to love math. I really struggled in the second half of the my 20s decade to unwean myself from my like hunger and love for math so that I could ready myself for a career beyond just pure math. You know, I was I was loving it so much, but I realized I wanted to be more engaged in the milieu of society and in all of that. So the thing that math had sort of like at that point embedded in me is like the binary nature of sort of like life, which is you're either wrong or you're right. <laughs> and there's nothing in between. And so what would happen in these meetings is that I would put a lot of filters on my thoughts because yeah. I was doing a lot of internal checking in my mind. Am I convinced that this is a valuable contribution to make here? That I'm offering the right solution. And 99% of the times I would say, I'm not convinced yet. You know, this could have right. this flaw, that flaw. And so I wouldn't offer it up. And what I noticed with the others is that they were more comfortable just offering it up. And I would say, peace the McKinsey culture that I was part of. I wouldn't say that it was not promoting psychological safety. I think it was more an inner constraint that I had yeah. on myself, you know, in, in that moment. So I, I want to ask you, to what extent do we need to be concerned with the middle layer? Uh, to what extent do we need to be concerned about changing the cultural kind of mindsets that senior executives have to like be thinking about? And to what extent do we also need to empower and equip and just like make people collectively feel more open and comfortable in bringing, bringing the thoughts and ideas? Uh, as long as the workplace is not... What are your thoughts on that? You know, I sometimes think about this. Um, I wish I could be more precise about this, but the um, all of us have like likely some threshold, right, above which we'll speak and below which we won't, of of, of confidence about what we're going to say. And I think all of us intuitively know that some people set that threshold too low and some people set it too high. And it sounds to me like you were setting it too high. Like, you know, unless you felt you could do the the rock solid mathematical proof of your idea, you weren't gonna let it out of there, right? It was gonna stay inside. Um, right. That's too high because often, you know, sometimes what you have to say is incomplete, but guess what? There's someone else on the team who could add to it and make it better. And you deprive them of that opportunity by not letting it out. But meanwhile, all of us also know that we've been on teams where people set it too low, where they're just saying, everything that comes into their head and it's not helpful and it slows us down. Um, and so, uh, this, so, so my way of thinking about this is that there are more people in workplaces, hierarchical workplaces that set it too high than too low. Uh, the people who set it too low, they in well-run organizations do get feedback, right? It's kind of like, hey, Tendra, we love you. And too often you're taking us off purpose. And, and here, here's an example. So in other words, they all, all of us, by the way, need and deserve feedback. So um, that's part of our job. We have to give people feedback because nobody comes to work and says, gee, I really hope to be ineffective today and have my colleagues think I talk too much and don't add value. Like nobody wants that, right? So when they're doing it, we owe them, right? We owe them an opportunity to learn and grow. It's harder to develop the people who've set it too high because we don't have, we don't get the data. We don't know what's going on in their head. And more often than not, they're they're holding back treasures. That so, which is why I say that by and large, when I'm talking about creating psychologically safe environments, I'm talking about lowering the average threshold, not to zero, right? But but just on average, it's going to usually be set too high. And there's this wonderful study by N.O. Simpson at University of Minnesota, and he's in a manufacturing setting, and he shows that it does an interaction effect between confidence and psychological safety. 
And he shows that at the same level of confidence about what it is, they their expertise or whatever, with more psychological safety, people will be more, more willing and able to contribute. Doesn't mean they'll always be right, but it means that they're in a far better position to harness the collective intelligence because it's coming out. We're able to play with it. Right. Do you have any examples for influencing leader inclusiveness from the bottom up? I think. And by bottom up, I'm assuming like the, the, the leaders who aren't at the very top, like just people throughout. I mean, that what are things that anyone right. do? And, That's what I'm thinking. And, and to me, I would I start with the, the phenomenal power of questions. And I, I mean, genuine questions, right? So that my argument is that anyone can influence the psychological safety of their own team or, or their own colleague by asking a genuine question, a, a work relevant, genuine, like, like, Dendra, what are your ideas on this, on this uh, decision? You know, what, what are your, what are your, you know, what thoughts do you have about this whatever, this project. Um, and then, of course, so I've asked that question. I call that a good question because it focuses us on something that matters. And it's phrased in such a way that invites care. It invites careful thought. And it gives you, now gives, it hands the space over to you to respond. Of course, it's really important that I now listen. You know, it's right. I've, I've given you a platform for voice. Um, now, if I walk away or start interrupting you, that's not going to, it's not going to work as well. But now I listen. Now I listen and now I react, right? So in that moment, now this might not be durable forever, but it might. In that moment, we've created a little bubble, right? A little bubble of, of, of mutual attention uh, to something relevant. And that's something that literally anyone can do. The reason we don't do it well and don't do it often enough is goes back to our cognitive frames. You know, we have this erroneous sense of, of seeing and knowing reality rather than we don't have enough of an appreciation for, wow, I don't know. I don't know. What am I missing? Right? If we woke up every morning with that you know, enthusiasm about learning, we'd be more curious. And if we were more curious, we'd spontaneously ask more questions. And if we asked more questions, our colleagues would know we cared about their voice. You know, uh, this idea of creating that, what did you call it? It was a beautiful phrase, that shared bubble, <laughs> you know, of, of uh, like a space where we can discover and uncover. That's, that's beautiful. It, it reminded me of, again, that phase of my life where I was in strategy consulting. And I know it's a very popular direction for many of our students to take, right, at HBS and CBS. Yep. And, and one of the things I think that that uh, discipline ends up honing in us is that uh, you are in that situation. You are in the situation where the power is held by senior client executives and you are ultimately just a consultant. You're not a line manager. You're not going to execute or own this, but you are there you know, as a um, whisperer in the ears right, of some guidance and advice. So you have to be in a position to, on the one hand, have a voice. After all, that's what they're paying you for. You have to be able to shape. You have to be able to influence. But you don't have the authority, you know, uh, in, in most of those cases to do that. And so all of these skills around using storytelling and, um, as you said, sometimes posing it as questions just to open people up rather than, you know, so you may come in with a lot of convictions, but you you don't just play all your cards out right there, you're, you know, and lay them down. You're, you're holding back. You're using appropriate tactics yeah. to influence, shape, yeah. inspire, guide people to the right answer. I would um, make a distinction, and I value them both, but I would make a distinction between curious questions and Socratic questions. And the, and the Socratic questions are those that are, it's not necessarily that there's a right answer, but that there's at least a, a framework or a domain that, that I, I want to lead the client to, or I want to lead the class to. And, and so I ask questions that, that head us in that direction, but uh, make them take ownership of it, help them take ownership of it. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, you can go awry in asking those kinds of questions when you make the mistake of, you know, there's certain kinds of questions where you inadvertently are trying to make them guess what's in your head. And it's not, it just doesn't work, right? Right. It's this blend. It's got to be a blend of what of letting them draw from their experience and their thinking to take us where we need to go. So that's Socratic. We do have a destination in mind, but there's various ways we can get there. And I need your help. 
But the genuine question where I sort of, you know, say, hey, Yatendra, where did you grow up? I don't have an answer in my head already. I don't know, right? I want, I want to hear about it. And I want to hear about your, and I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. And, and I think both, there's a place for both kinds of questions yeah. in today's workplace. And, you know, one of my great um, mentors and advisors was a, a professor called Chris Argerus, who, who spent his entire life devoted to understanding why learning breaks down in conversational worlds at work and and what to do about it and his one of his big insights was we spend an awful lot of time telling and very little time genuinely asking even if you analyze questions many of them are of the rhetorical or leading kind you expect me to believe that that's not uh, that's not a genuine question. Yeah, I remember Chris's work uh, going back uh, a few decades when I was uh, at MIT doing my PhD, and oh. I think the learning organization and Peter Senge and his work and all of us starting to get very It was fantastic as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. I we we have a precious few minutes uh, left in our conversation today, and I I want to move the conversation into a different space move from leadership to life it's something that um, i'm very drawn to in how we evolve our dialogues even in a business school classroom and in executive you know arenas which is to really connect the whole person self i know amy that's something you're also very drawn to you've spoken about it you know a, a few times in in some really powerful ways what like your work is implications are with regard to the need to have a more whole person view and um, and then as soon as you take the whole person view, you, you got to think about life just as much as work. So I find that the ideas and thoughts you're expressing, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on it, are as applicable in making us good citizens, making us good siblings, making us good parents and good children and members of a community as anything else. Because don't we need to foster the same kind of value of being open to failure, learning from failure, being learning oriented in everything we do? I mean, Gandhi said it beautifully. He said, learn as though you're going to live for Forever, right and up until your dying breath just keep evolving and learning and uh, psychological safety let's say as a parent with a lot of authority over a one-year-old or a two-year-old you know etc thoughts reactions i couldn't agree more i mean i i think these are uh, what, what i'm talking about ultimately does boil down to the inner the inner journey the growth you know our own our own willingness as adults and it's not easy right but our, our willingness to keep learning to keep growing and that sounds like fun until you realize that also means the willingness to be wrong and to be limited i mean we're, we're the as you as you get to be a kind of a working adult and then a working adult who's been working for decades it can feel psychologically like the stakes are very great indeed you know you you can't be wrong you have to be experts suffer from this challenge of i'm the expert i'm supposed to know the answers just true but experts are are generally in rather narrow domains and reality is complicated and 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 crosses complex really and crosses domains so unless we are willing to be i think fundamentally humble right humble about humble in a in a strong way right to to acknowledge that yes you have an awful lot uh, of knowledge and expertise and to give but also a lot we don't know always and and we'll have to keep learning because the world will keep changing so humble uh curious you know willing to learn willing to ask and empathic right to have a a very um serious and deep appreciation uh for the reality of others right that others are are, are human beings as well who have their own feelings and needs and and each of us isn't just the center of the universe yeah that quality that you've just described the humility with the curiosity and the empathy and yet grounded in your convictions. It just kind of sparked a memory in my mind. Many, many years ago, we came back from a dinner at some friends' place and my daughter looks aghast, you know, at me and my wife. And she says, we forgot my frog there. We have to go back and get my frog. And it was, it was an origami frog. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not a not a living frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we were like, it's tired. You know, we're all tired. It's late at night. We have this origami paper at home. So your mom will make you a new frog in the morning, all right? So, but now it's time for you, you to go to sleep, Nalini. So, so, so go to sleep. And she was like, no, I want my frog. I want my frog. And and then my wife and I are starting to feel like, oh, you know, we're we're 
um, not like parenting her well because here she is rebellious. She's uh, not looking at the clock. It's late, and you know, demanding instant gratification. You know, wanting a frog now and now and all of that. And it went back and forth a couple of times. And at one point again, I said, "Nani, we're going to make you a frog in the morning. Now you have to go to sleep." And she said, "Well, if you make me my frog in the morning, it's not going to be the same frog." <laughs> I want my frog. I don't want a new frog. I want my frog. And it was a very humbling moment. It was a very endearing moment. And I realized in that frame, in that moment, like how limiting my frame was. My frame was that it's about now versus morning. But actually, right. the frame was like, please Wait, get to the frog. I've grown into so much affection with. If you're going to be so casual about my relationship with your my frog, maybe you're going to just like leave me somewhere at summer camp and then just want to make a <laughs> baby, <laughs> getting me back. <laughs> Anyways, it all stems yeah. from these fears, right? It's all about these deep fears, right? The fear of being left alone, uh, kicked out of the tribe, um, you know, and that and that breeds this need to be to be right. When really we, we, we long for connection, we can and must keep helping ourselves long for growth and development, uh, but we protect ourselves against growth and development in, in ways that aren't always very helpful. Yeah, so true. So given the centrality of these ideas, as much in life as in leadership, uh, first, I just want to like Thank you, Amy, for contributing so much of your life's work, right, in an area that um, I really think is helping advance organizations, advance cultures, but also in many ways advance humanity at both the micro level of the kind of things we can build into our families, as well as the macro level of what we need in organizations and society at large. What is your big dream? at this point, when you look at uh, the next decade of your career in life? I don't have a good answer. I, I, I need a better answer. But I suppose given our conversation, a part of that dream is to is to have the kind of the the, the courage and, and, and fortitude to do, to keep doing my own inner work. You know, it's a lot easier as all of your listeners know uh, to talk about these issues than to live them in a, in a real way. We all love to be right. We don't like to be disagreed with. So the, the aspiration is to keep learning and growing and, and occasionally coming up with something that resonates that other people find useful. And you started this session by saying you've done this research and long ago you found that it connected to practice. I live for people like you who are able to take some of the little things I've found and, and then take them further. So I appreciate that. No, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I mean, it's a beautiful quest you're on. I, I was also thinking, Amy, that you know, if you look at like the history of knowledge at a mass level, you had the Gutenberg Press moment where knowledge was just very local to people's heads or communities, but suddenly it became available at a mass level with books. Um, I was reading back in the 1300s or 1400s, this biggest library in Europe was in Paris and it had 300 books. And then of course the internet has taken this whole thing to a whole new level. Right. Um, and it's almost like if you were to think about it, like the lived truths versus the published known accessible truths, that gap is just starting to grow and grow and grow, isn't it? That's very, that's a very good way to put it, I think. And then that, and then we, we don't, we need new ideas about how do we reduce that gap, right? That particular gap. I think that's a very powerful insight. Yeah. So any, any thoughts on that? Anything that you have seen work well in getting these ideas in people who are well-intentioned? I'm sure a lot of executives that you interact with end up buying into this thesis. Yeah. But then two months later, a year later, two years later. The, the short answer is do it, practice, right? Pra you know, you don't get good at the sort of the learning routines without doing them, practicing them. But, but oftentimes when we say practice, that immediately brings up a, a notion of, you know, offline uh, later when we're not busy working. No, practice in the process of doing the real work, making the decisions, you know, interacting with the clients, what, whatever the work is you do, caring for patients, make that the arena of, of practice, of, of what Don Shearn used to call reflection in action. Uh, because the more we practice while doing the work we need to do, I think the better we get at that inner side of it, but that has to be done consciously and attentively. Great thought uh, at, at a very, very sort of micro level. My wife and daughter used to live most of the time in India because we were raising her there to go to school. And now, now she's graduated. Now she's coming to college. So she's back here in New York. And uh, 
we're we're getting used to spending all our time together as opposed to a fraction of our time away and a fraction of our time yeah. together as part of that um my wife has noticed that when i leave the apartment the door sometimes bangs behind me it's not that i've like willfully pulled it but there's, there's some yeah. air or some wind you know in the corridor in the apartment and that just pushes the door and that's kind of right. which is a little bit noisy and she has been so attentive to every time that happens to bring it to my notice she will text me if i am walking out of the apartment or if i'm walking in she let me know and the first time I didn't really conform the second time I didn't conform I want to I want to do it which is like hold the door don't blame it on the wind which unexpectedly came hold the door and gradually just move it to the right so yeah. that it's you know anyway but having had that nipping in the bud like from her yeah. on several occasions I'm starting to finally get into the habit of doing it the right way versus the wrong way you can learn, right you're able to learn. <laughs> exactly no it's a good metaphor because I grew up in New York and we had one of those doors too and it just if you don't close it 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 slams that's just the way it was a heavy door and it, it and the problem you know okay so what well the so what is it is heard by others as anger yeah. right you slammed the door no you didn't right but yeah. so you have to but I like the idea that you could learn and that your wife was willing to give you the feedback rather mm -hmm. than just roll her eyes so beautiful in in closing then amy just ask you one thing i have this hypothesis which uh, partly was something that steve jobs spoke about he in his uh, stanford commencement address perhaps you've heard it it's uh, you know so so well regarded he, he speaks about how you cannot connect the dots looking forward you can only connect them looking backward and he makes so much meaning out of seemingly just random moments in his early part of his career and life that much later on bore so much significance to the kind of vision and ideas and thoughts that he was putting out there and i wonder amy when you look back at the arc of your life you talk about <laughs> growing up in new york and you know you've uh, taken root in cambridge massachusetts over the last you know few decades what do you see as the early shapers that may have in fact sown the seeds for your values your outlook on life and the world that has led over the years for you to make this your calling make this the kind of work that you are advancing humanity along well thank you for that hypothesis the advancing part but my I, it certainly traces back to my parents my family a great emphasis on on service a great emphasis in in my in my family extended and nuclear on um, what is it you can do for others and and a, you know your your job here is to make the world a better place in the smaller in the large it's you know it's not about um just satisfying your own needs and desires it's it's a it, that might sound like a sort of overly unselfish perspective but it actually isn't right because life is far more meaningful when lived in a sense of connectedness to others and i think all of us or at least my upbringing led me to to long to be of service in some small way even just you know even to be able to uh, to make someone's um life or day better in just a little bit i think is is a is a rewarding thing for for people yeah that is so beautiful here is a a really great summary humble curious empathetic simple but great takeaways from today and perhaps we can add to that this quality of servicefulness that you have shared that you you learned from your from your parents and really sought to assimilate in practice that is so beautiful just a final remark from you to bring us to closure if there's one thing that you want everyone here to really carry back take to heart some one thing that you would want to encourage them to practice uh let's end on that note amy so offer that platform to you practice good questions the the art of good questions that's in your hands every day there are opportunities countless opportunities to do that yeah thank you so much amy i know you've got a couple of articles that you've written recently in harvard business review in addition to the book uh which are sharing some of your newer fresher thinking and research it is such a joy to have you in this conversation here today and to discover even more about your path and and work and uh, what you see for the future i hope that we'll get a chance to bring you back to this audience sometime soon so very very grateful for all you do and for making this time for us today it was a pleasure and the time flew by so thank you for having me yeah all the best in your journey ahead i'm sure we are going to be in touch and hope to have you back here as well thank you amy right.